Good morning, everyone. I'm very glad you're with us. Let me introduce myself to each of you here in the West Auditorium, to everyone in the East, in Lovington, and also those who are worshiping with us online. It's been a few weeks since I was in worship with you, and so um, I should probably let you know who I am. My name is Wayne, and I'm one of the pastors. <laughs> I'm glad to be with you today. Uh, you are aware, perhaps, that each summer, I take some time away from the responsibilities of preaching. Uh, you know, writing a sermon each week usually takes 15 to 20 hours or so, and so when you're doing that regularly, it's what we do in the summer is I take four or five weeks away from that responsibility to think through the implications of what are we going to preach in the fall and also into the coming year. And so, um, you know, you think, okay, what are the broad themes we need to look at? What's the preaching calendar look like? And things like that. So I've been doing that throughout the month of August. And in the meanwhile, young Brian Talty <laughs> took you through an experimental preaching approach. He looked at five different movies from Hollywood and used them to illustrate biblical themes. It was a labor-intensive project, very labor-intensive for Brian and his whole team, um, Jeremy on the video and then Zach and, and uh, Fred doing all the tech stuff. We learned some things that work well in that. We learned some things that don't. And overall, though, it appeared you enjoyed Brian's leadership and preaching. In fact, uh, it's quite apparent that it was so popular... <laughs> Brian, that uh, we're going to do it again next August as well. But there's trouble for me, though. Here's, here's the deal. Yeah, all right. Oh, great, 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 yeah. Here's the trouble for me, though. You've got this handsome young kid in the pulpit showing off his preaching skills using movies and lights and sound with a very intense experience. And then today there's a 61-year-old guy standing up there. It's a recipe for disaster, right? Well, Brian Talty, you 30-some-something or other, let me tell you, long before you were born, long before you were ever thought of, we had pictures and movie figures long before you were born to illustrate the Bible. And I'm going to show you, young Brian Talty. When I was young, we had pictures too. We had flannel boards. Take that. <laughs> Take that. And in our movies, Jesus showed up every week. That's right. The problem is, when I was a kid, can I tell you, when I was a kid and Jesus showed up on our flannel boards, that figure uh, obviously was used week after week after week, and over the years, he got bent so that invariably he would look like this. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, I remember thinking, did Jesus walk around like this? As a seven-year-old, I remember that thought specifically. And it presented a theological problem that I, obviously, I thought, well, if Jesus could heal all these people, how come he can't heal himself? <laughs> that was my seven-year-old brain. It really was. But... I do remember one particular movie, highlight reel, that I'm going to show you today, of when a fella dressed in a toga, just like Jesus was wearing, when that fella met Jesus. I want to replay it for you right now. <laughs> That's when that young fella, who has no neck, 
met Jesus. All right, enough of that. I'm going to turn it that Oh, we lost. Yeah, we lost Jesus right there. Okay, so um, I would like you to do this. I'd like you to thank Brian and his team for their excellent work of the last five weeks. And in light of that, we're starting a new 13-week series today. It's going to take us, it's going to tell a tremendous story. It's going to tell a story that's worthy of movies. It's, um, it's going to take us through the arc of Scripture. You know, just as movies tell a story, so there's a story to the Bible, an overall arc. And um, the Bible really starts in the book of Genesis where all is well. It's really a cool, cool setting where God is engaged daily in the lives of those living in the Garden of Eden. Life is peaceful, and every day God goes down to the Garden of Eden, and he visits with them. There's no trauma or difficulty, but then the story moves through the development of sin and struggle and strife. It's introduced into humanity's existence, and the tension increases, increases over many, many years, many generations, centuries where it reached this, this apex of the arrival of Jesus Christ, his, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. That really is the apex of the Bible. And then in terms of how many years there are from Jesus' ministry, there's thousands of years leading up to Jesus' ministry. And then by the time you get to the end of the Bible, it's only another 40 or 50 years thereafter. And so it quickly drops off to where, again, you end up with the book of Revelation, where there's a prediction of a cosmos-wide renewal to the days of Genesis. It's a return to the Genesis experience of God's interaction with people described this way. I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, this is in the days to come yet, friends, but this is what the end of time as we know it will be like. A loud voice from the throne is going to say, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Just like God walked with the people in the Garden of Eden, there's a day coming when God will be with people again. He'll be, they'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It's, 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 it's a return to the Genesis understanding. And so what, throughout this story, throughout this arc... We're going to help you discover that arc and that story over the next 13 weeks. And why are we doing it? Why are we doing this run, if you will, through 13 weeks of the Bible? Well, here's, here's my sense. Your home is probably like many of the homes that are represented here today. You're interested in the story of Scripture, but you go, man, it's really thick. And it sounds, just to know it, sounds intimidating. And you're glad, you go, I'm glad that, you know, that, that the preaching team at First Christian Church, they unpack a portion of the Bible each week. But to, you think to yourself, there's no way, I, well, you think this, I could never assimilate 6,000 plus years of history and, and from all of that history gain some spiritual truths without the help of some people who've been to seminary and Bible school and who could really kind of unpack it for me. And I, I promise you, in the next 13 weeks, we're going to give you the tools that help you to do that. You can understand the Bible. We're going to give you the, the, the information you need. I want you to know, friends, the Bible today, today the Bible is readable, understandable, and relevant for your life and your home and your situation where you are right now. So to set the stage uh, for the coming 13 weeks, I want to issue a challenge to you 
Here's the challenge. Examine scripture. Take a look at what the, and we've got some tools for you I'm gonna give you in just a few moments. In doing so, in issuing this challenge to you, I'm relating a story that I have never acknowledged publicly in the past. So for today, ironically, as we say we want you to look at scripture, I'm not gonna bring to you an exegetical sermon unpacking a particular passage or a particular topic from scripture. Even as we're saying look at scripture, I'm telling you a story that will set up our work for the weeks to come, today through Thanksgiving. And what I'm about to tell you, friends, has never publicly been told since 1984. It has never been publicly acknowledged for the safety of those who were involved. But enough years have passed by and enough political changes have occurred in Eastern Europe that it's appropriate that I can tell you about this. I'm aware that as I tell you this story, it's probably gonna raise a lot of questions within your mind, more, more, and that's gonna require more time than we have today. But what I'm about to tell you is not a tall tale, but it is the true story of Wayne and Leslie Kent before I began pastoral ministry in late 1985. It's before we had children, before we moved to Decatur, and before Leslie began singing in some 400 prisons across the nation. And if you're new here today, you might be a little bit suspicious because the tale sounds fantastical, but it is not a tale. I'm asking you if you're new with us today or watching online, there are hundreds of people here who have done life with Leslie and me for the last 25 plus years, varying degrees, and there's a lot of trust between us, and so I'm asking you to lean into that trust as I tell you this story. So instead of an exegetical sermon per se, today, a story starts with this. This is more than a piece of polished brass. I want to tell you the story of this piece of brass that sits in a special space in my desk all the time. See, many of you know that Leslie and I were part of a um, Christian band uh, back in the 70s and 80s. We traveled literally around the world. The, the band began in 1969. The 50th anniversary of the band is next October. The band is no longer in existence, but uh, in, next month, we're all gathering in Tulsa for a reunion. It's gonna be really fun. The band had one goal. That was, through our music, we'd invite people to become a Christian at the end of every concert. And the details are not important, but we literally saw thousands of thousands of people. We saw more than 100,000 people in the years we were on the road. More than 100,000 people walk forward at the end of a concert and say, I wanna give my life to Jesus Christ. It was very, very labor-intensive. We performed more than 200 nights a year. Leslie and I were on the road with Living Sound for some five years. At 200 nights a year, plus often morning concerts in schools, we sang or performed in those five years alone in more than 1,000 different venues in literally dozens of nations. Whatever nation we were in, I was a musician, it was easy. The music was the same every night. The singers had to learn those songs and those charts in, their, in that new language each and every time we went to a new country. The music was important, but it was always simply a vehicle to tell people about Jesus Christ, both in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe, in Africa and in Asia. We went all those places. I say Eastern and Western Europe because we traveled extensively in both. Uh, home base was in Oklahoma. 
we had an office in England as well. And then we traveled from England when we were in overseas in Europe, usually nine to 10 months a year. Uh, we traveled from England to the Western nations of, of Europe, as well as the communist nations in Eastern Europe, if you will, the Iron Curtain. And some of you are so young, you don't know anything about the Iron Curtain, but um, it was the days when communism ruled the days there. And our goal when we would go to Eastern Europe was to help the Christians there in their evangelism efforts. Now, Eastern Europe was tricky. If you look at that map, by the way, um, our travels took us through East Germany, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, you can see up the north there, all the way through Russia. We were in, uh, Livingstown was in Hungary, it was in Czechoslovakia, I was in Yugoslavia, um, Romania, in the Ukraine, Belarus, all the way, all the way down to Armenia, right up literally within a mile of the border of Iran. As a matter of fact, we were on the Iranian border, about to cross into Iran in 1979, on the day the Iranian hostage crisis began. And we were warned by the Constantinople, the head of the Armenian Orthodox Church, said, he said, something's happening in Iran, Today, we think you better, not, you, you better not go into Iran. And if it would, we would have been Americans and Canadians in Iran when that whole mess broke out. So, um, working in those countries was tricky. We performed concerts there, very often before huge crowds. Large, large crowds. I mean, the largest crowd that Living Sound ever played was for 250,000 people. We were very well known, particularly in Poland. 250, quarter of a million people came to hear Living Sound at the invitation of the Polish cardinal, you may know this name, Karol Wojtyla. He went on later to become John Paul II. Uh, that concert was in the late fall of 1977. I joined the band in February of 1978, just a few weeks after that concert took place. The band went on after Les and I got married and we went back to school, a long story, um, and went on to actually play in St. Peter's Square at the Pope's invitation. In Eastern Europe, we were used to having the secret police follow us. We began to recognize when we were being followed. In Poland, some of our work involved uh, coordinating with Solidarność, you may remember that, um, and Lech Wałęsa, some of you remember that history. Les and I actually sat in his home and had tea with him after he was released from prison, immediately after the martial law was lifted. Again, there's lots of stories that could go with all of this. Wałęsa later on became Poland's president. And we've never really told you all about this because of the fear of telling you the stories and the safety for those involved in days gone by. Why? It was the Cold War. It was a different time from now. And that's why much of what we did has remained secret for so many years. At times it was dangerous for both us and our contacts. If we were in a new community and didn't know who was our contact, we'd walk down the street looking for somebody to flash something like this at us. They were about, I think about it, these are all handmade, and they were passed to us. And so, like for example, I was in Kiev in 1979, in the fall of 1979, and I was assigned by the band to go find our contact. Literally walking down the street, holding this in my hand, hoping that somebody, looking for secret police for the KGB, hoping that somebody would flash this at me. And there was a young lady, whose name is Ula Pope, was wearing one of these around her neck. And that was my indication. Don't talk to Ula. See what you can do to turn around and follow her, and she will tell you where you need to go. That occurred, occurred over and over many times. Now, we usually traveled in a band bus. You know what a band bus looks like. You've seen them travel down the road, and with a large equipment truck following behind. We had loads and loads of equipment. We could do crowds of 50 people, 
really scaled down to crowds. I mean, we had enough equipment on the bus to do a crowd of about 5,000. If it was going to be over 5,000, probably we had to bring other, other equipment in. It was easy within that equipment to hide small things inside the equipment boxes. See, over the context of trip after trip behind the Iron Curtain, we learned of the needs faced by Christians. And we began to take that sort of stuff in to the, so into the Eastern Europe, hidden in our equipment boxes, taking it to our friends. The nations um, behind the Iron Curtain faced all sorts of shortages in regards to consumer goods, everything from soap to towels to toilet paper to underwear to clothes to musical equipment to, we soon learned, Bibles. See, the communists were desperate to have their citizens swallow the party line. And any book that could cause people to think independently was banned. The Bible was never banned, per se, except in, Arme in, um, in Armenia. It was not Armenia. Um, Albania. It was banned in Albania. But they never made any. They never printed any. And so there were no Bibles to be had. And so over time, our gifts moved from personal items to one or two Bibles. To eventually, by the time we got to 1979, we made intentional decisions collectively by the group. We made a choice. We decided to forego... Soviet law for the sake of intentional decisions to smuggle Bibles into the USSR in large quantities. And we knew this, the penalty if we got caught, 14 years in a Soviet prison. We knew that. See, as young, under, as young Christians, we understood the call of Scripture to obey authorities and it also to provide help for those in need. And those two calls, when it came to working particularly in Poland and the Soviet Union and Romania, those two calls were at odds with one another. You have these two elements of Christianity which are really important. You obey authorities, and yet you obey the call of God to help people. And we figured out this. We would choose to help those in need, even at the cost of disobeying the Soviet law and being willing to face the subsequent consequences. In that regard, we thought of the early Christians, the first century Christians. They followed Christ at the expense of their own lives, since the governing authorities wanted them to deny Christ. And we thought, these people are an example. And so our smuggling operations, that's the way to put it, that's what we were doing, progressed from bars of soap that we would give to friends to full-scale Bible smuggling. And in a moment, I'll tell you of how the Christians responded to the risks we took. But I think you would probably legitimately ask this question, why would you do that? Why would a bunch of 20-somethings do that? Why would we risk prison in the Soviet gulag? Well, because of the power and the dependability of the Bible. Because here's what the Bible really means to those of us who follow Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us it helps those who read it and follow its directives. Christians, we believe that the Bible contains God's word. Words for our lives. It's important to know the story. It's important that you know the story. As I mentioned, that story from Genesis to Revelation. Because when you know the story and where your life fits in that context, there are great advantages. With the Bible readily available to us here in the West... I suspect that sometimes we've forgotten its importance. It's, when Les and I were talking about this last night, even this morning, it's like what I'm telling you today is a whole other life for us. That we, when we came stateside 
in 85 and I started pastoral ministry, we had to more or less shut that off and say, we can't talk about that for a very long time. You know, here's my experience, that many of us have grandma's thick Bible somewhere on the shelf. It's kind of passed down to us and, you know, it's full of pictures and writings and it's written in English that we can't fully understand. It's 400 year old, 400 years old English and it, we say, well, it's confusing and so we think, I, I can't get into it. Well, in the coming weeks, we're going to show you how to get that book off the shelf or perhaps one that's a little more understandable in English that we can read and how to get it off the shelf and into your life. Why? Because friends, when you know scripture, when you know the story of the Bible, you understand it, it, it anchors human history. When you know the story of Scripture, you meet, you meet the God of the Bible, suddenly life in the 21st century is not some detached mixture of geopolitical ideas of capitalism and socialism and democracy and dictatorship and shifting borders and technology and media and global warming and population booms and declines and wars. Our world, the 21st century, is incredibly complicated and incredibly confused. But the Bible's arc and the story anchors all of that. All those ideas are found and answered within Scripture. We understand, if you know the Bible, we understand history as a story with a predicted end in mind. See, the Scriptures help us learn. Additionally, knowing the story of Scripture anchors your personal story. If you know the story of Scripture and if you meet the God of the Bible through Jesus Christ, suddenly you know where you fit in in the grand scheme and the overall human narrative. You learn of your personal value to God. You learn of God's interest in you. Do you know that God loves you so much, the Bible says, that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. That is what happens as a result of knowing Scripture. Scripture puts it this way. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It helps you grow. Why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to live life right. You want to do good things. That comes through being trained and rebuked and corrected and admonished by Scripture. Did you notice there's the teaching, the correcting and training? Learn Scripture... And you change. It's what you were meant to do. As a matter of fact, in the words of Brian Talty's Star Wars movies, it's your destiny. <laughs> you learn your destiny. The words of Scripture, when combined with the Holy Spirit, bring life to you. See, the Bible as you hold it might be just a book. I, it, it is just a book. Frankly, it's simply a bunch of pages with black ink attached. There's nothing, about, there's nothing holy about the product that you hold in your hands today, in and of itself. It was printed on a printing press that could have been printed, uh, that could have printed a phone book or a magazine in the job order tickets immediately before and after the printing of that book. Is the paper holy? No. But it says this holy Bible on the side. What's holy, though, is not the paper or the ink. What's holy is the way in which God's voice, directives, and interest in your life come alive. God's holiness, friend, God's holiness can be delivered to you. 
through Jesus Christ, his cross, his resurrection. We learn of that in scripture. We learn how the story develops to the point where Jesus is the apex of the story and exactly what happens in the quick resolution thereafter. So in the days ahead, join us. Here's how you can do it. You can go to the church's website and you'll see a tab on the front page of the website, either on your phone or on, on your computer, and just click on off the shelf. You can sign up and we're going to create a community of um, people that are going to read for 10 minutes a day, five days a week. There's also a hardcore plan. If you want to read the whole Bible, you know, like in about 12 chapters a day, we can, figure, we can help you do that. But we figured out how, a way in which you can read the story of Scripture. What's going to happen each week is that either Brian and I will be preaching and then in the week following, you're going to read the Scriptures. We're going to um, tell you what's to expect. And you know, but in 10 minutes a day for the next five days or two days to catch up, you can, each week you can, you can read the story of Scripture. We'll show you how to do it. In 90 days, you'll get from front to back and we'll fill in the details of the historical data and the timeline that you can see in today's program. It's, it shows you exactly where, where things fit in. And so I'd invite you then this week to grab a Bible, get Grandma's Bible off the shelf. Here's the timeline if you haven't seen it on the, in today's bulletin, okay, if you guys would show that. That's where we're going to go. We're going to go back to Genesis and Moses, and 13 weeks later we'll end up at the early church in Revelation. So I want you to do this. I want you to get Grandma's Bible off the shelf. Or if not hers, at least go pick up one somewhere, okay? I would suggest you do that. If you don't own a Bible already, go to Sam's. They're cheap at Sam's. You can buy one at Mosaic Cafe. We have free Bibles now. There's cheap. We have free Bibles available at the welcome desk today. If you're buying one, be aware that we use something called the New International Version here. Look for the NIV. It's in the most readable English, that, if you will, that's, that's 21st century English. The, or you could do this. You can go online and, and use the U version. And I will tell you that while I have plenty of Bibles, I use U version every day, both for my personal reading and often for even for my pastoral study responsibilities. So you can, you can read it right on your phone. You could be walking down the road as you're, you know, down the, on your walk on, as you're exercising or running in the morning. You can listen to the Bible. It's brilliant stuff. I want to invite you to do that. Please, friends, take 13 weeks and let's see what God will do in your life. In the meanwhile, though, I know you still have some questions about, what about, why, why did a bunch of 20-somethings get involved in Bible smuggling? Well, we were convinced of Scripture's story. We were convinced of the power of that. And as I said, over time, our operations went from bars of soap for friends to full-scale Bible, Bible smuggling. But we quickly learned this. Um, uh, in the spring of, of 1979, going into the Soviet Union, we, we learned we could only get so many Bibles in because, frankly, they take up a lot of room. Paper is heavy. And so we thought, what could we do differently? Well, what if we could do the publication and the printing of Bibles inside the Soviet Union? So in the fall of 1979... We took in a printing press and the lead plates of the Russian New Testament. And um, I, I remember um, there, was, there was one speaker that had the book of Luke in it, the, the lead plates. And as I was lifting it from the ground where the guards had inspected it, up back up into the bus with a guard standing right here. I remember thinking, God, this thing is so heavy. I hope I can lift it. Because it was, it was not just a speaker. It was actually a speaker with lead plates inside it. And I'm... <gasps> 
trying to get, oh yeah, it's always this heavy. Yeah. 1979. But we faced a problem. Once we, once we got all that in, we could get it up and running, but we could never buy enough paper. The Soviet Christians could never buy enough paper. But we learned in the early 80s there was something in the Soviet Union that was in great supply, and that was cassette tapes. Of all the consumer goods, they had, you could always buy cassette tapes. So in 1984, uh, we decided, let's do something different. We had a Russian here in, the, here in the U.S. read the entire New Testament onto master tapes, and we took in large tape-duplicating um, studios, big tabletop machines that were like this with the master tapes. We could, if we got, we thought, if we can get those in, they can buy the cassette tapes there. And actually, I carried in thousands and thousands of dollars in my pocket, literally, to, uh, to take, so that the Christians could buy the cassettes. Leslie and I uh, were responsible for the drop. So the, the idea was, if we could set up that tape duplicating system in one place, the underground church was, was split across 10 different Ten different regions across the country, and they could mail those cassettes without creating a lot of. It could go in the mail. It wouldn't have to be carted. It wouldn't have to be carried and stuff like that. So, Leslie and I were responsible for the drop. The rest of the group didn't know what was taking place in the drop for their own safety. So at dusk, my lovely wife left the hotel where we were staying, the Vero Hotel, and she walked for about an hour and a half to a local park, waiting for Christians to pick her up. She was picked up, brave young lady. How old were you, honey? 25, maybe. Something like that. And um, thrown literally into the back of a Russian sedan and whisked across town. Wanted to make certain that we kept the tapes separate from the machines until we could get them together in the hiding place. In the meanwhile, I took the bus with a Soviet Christian looking over the window like this so nobody would see him, and drove it across town to where I backed it into the driveway of a little house where a local pastor was planning to meet us. The driveway was so narrow, I had no idea how I got that bus in there. I really, I, it's the only time I, I think I drove under the influence of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I had to back the bus all the way over to the right-hand side so that we had enough room to open the bay doors of the bus. As a matter of fact, you know, bay doors swing up like that. We could only get them up out that far. And these Christians crawled into the bus and pulled all that equipment out. And then meanwhile, Leslie was inside, passing off the master tapes. The fellow who got it um, held those tapes to his, his chest. He was a pastor, a Methodist. He'd been in ministry for more than 10 years. His church had about 250 people in it. He's still alive, though he's retired now. And um, life is much easier being a Christian in the post-Cold War now in those countries. Than, and there are lots of freedoms that they didn't have in the former Soviet Union. And as he held that, very emotionally saying, I'm, we're going we're gonna to supply the Bible to people all across my country. He said, this is what I have of a Bible. Now, this is a pastor. He had two pages torn from the Gospel of John out of an English Bible. That's all he owned. Somebody had come in and torn two pages of the Gospel of John out of their own English Bible and said, this is yours. And so he would translate, and he'd been preaching from that for 10 years. In the meanwhile, between you and me, we probably have 16 Bibles in our homes, right? 
And we have multiple versions available via the internet. Now, I want to remind you, friends, <laughs> we don't worship the Bible around here by any means. We worship the God displayed in Scripture, choosing to know his story in order to learn our story. We choose to worship the God revealed in Scripture in order to reveal his plans for us. We worship the God of Scripture, learning of Jesus' sacrificial death so that we can discover the joys of sacrificial living for the sake of others in Jesus' name. We choose to worship the God of Scripture and not the Bible so that the Bible's words become God's words and directions in our lives. And the focus of what I, I want to be careful today, the focus of this story today, I want it to be about Wayne and Leslie. I mean, Ben sitting over here, he's never heard this story before. This is, this is the first time it's been told publicly ever. It's been so secret for so long. But I want you to understand how important the Bible is to us and why its authority has to be placed in our lives in the right way. Two pages torn from the Gospel of John. Can you imagine? This is all you got? Now some of you are just freaked out. <laughs> it's not really a Bible. It's a book that's just been um, decommissioned by the Decatur Public Library. It's called Granger's Index to Poetry and Recitations. Oh, I tell you, it's brilliant reading. <laughs> But if it had been a Bible, I wonder how many of us might have been more offended that Wayne tore two pages out of the Bible, more offended by that than be offended by the prospect of having access to the Bible and not doing anything with it. Get yours off the shelf this week. And let's work together. God bless you today. Okay.